0: Stay tuned after this episode for a bonus interview from Ken's Adventures at the SAA with Dr. Gabe Yenicki from the Canadian Museum of History. You'll, you'll, you'll see us because we'll have, uh, Gabe will be walking around with uh, one of those big, like, uh, like sort of a goofy, like a very large chain and, yeah. uh, and the microphone hanging off of it. So we can just kind of grab you in the hallway and, and, uh, and go.
1: Yeah, usually I'm the Indiana Jones of Canadian Archaeology, but at the CAAs, I'm the Flavor slave of uh, <laughs> that's, that's, Canadian that's Archaeology. Take, uh, <laughs> yeah.
0: The New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast, featuring your hosts, Gabe.
1: Brother Archaeology Podcast. I'm Gabe Reineck here in Southern New England and I'm joined as I am every fortnight by Ken Holyoke in Lethbridge, Alberta. How are you Ken?
0: Not too bad. It's uh it's actually there's still light outside right now as we record this podcast which is uh, a sign of the times.
1: Well that's fascinating. In, uh, here in uh Manchester, New Hampshire it's uh dark but it is really really warm but to quote have you ever seen the movie uh do the Right Thing, Spike Lee film?
0: I don't think I have.
1: Right, but so to paraphrase Sweet Dick Willie from Do the Right Thing, it ain't <laughs> never too hot nor too cold for the New Brunswick Archaeology podcast. So there here we go. are.
0: Oh, what a, an opening.
1: And What an That's opening, a... yeah, I know. The <laughs> entirely unscripted listener, don't worry. <laughs> um, and this week, we're going to be talking about the transitional or the terminal archaic from about 4,000 to 3,000 years ago. We are sponsored as we are every fortnight by the association of professional archaeologists of new brunswick we have on good authority this week that we have still not paid our web <laughs> hosting service and there is still no website but stay tuned we'll let you know as soon as it's back um,
0: coveted apa url though is still still in our uh, possession i believe
1: it is and in fact if you're going to be at the canadian archaeology association meeting here in in a month or so Catch Ken and I at the bar, and we've got a great story to you for you about that URL that, uh, that uh, it tickles us, and we assume it'll tickle you too. So um, we wanted to open with a little note about our music, which you have just heard, um, which is that uh, our music, uh, some of our music is by Justin Hankey, um, and he now has a podcast of his own, and it's about the band uh, Weezer. And Ken, do you know the band Weezer?
0: I do. Yeah,
1: cool. Yeah, yeah. So, so you'll know that they've done such hits as the sweater song, Island in the Sun, Beverly Hills, Hash Pipe.
0: Yep, yep. The, I'm, uh... I'm familiar. Yeah, yeah. Is the Island other... in the Sun with the, the one with all the, the uh, fluffy animals the music video?
1: I think that was the music video. Yeah. So, I mean, we we probably had a different experience because you're watching this on on what's that that AM Canadian one? It was a uh, much much music. Was that what it was called? Much music. Yeah. Yeah they uh i've I've never seen much music because i didn't live in canada at that uh you know multiple stage in my life
0: but yeah it was uh it was peak canadiana it was uh you should look at the old speakers corner videos actually that uh, oh really where they they used to have this um it was basically like an atm down downtown outside the much music studio Uh and you put a dollar in and you could just record yourself and so like you know, it's like right down in the bar district in downtown Toronto. And so they just had a bunch of, you know, revelers out there that would just show up and rant about something uh, and they would it would record your rant and then they would just play it at random times during, you know, during the day in between like the music videos and things you know, like that.
1: Well, Ken, I think you've just given us the idea for how we're going to do the early Woodland podcast in, it's- in the next
0: fortnight. It's true. It's true. And it's actually how the Bare Naked Ladies got their start is my understanding. Is it really? they, they showed up as a band on Speaker's Corner and got discovered. I think that was I think that's true. Well, it is. I, now. I know I re- far as I'm yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that may be that may be our Hakuna errata for next week for exactly. next fortnight.
1: <laughs> it might be or it's possible that that we'll check Wikipedia next week and we'll we'll find ourselves cited as having entered into the Bare Naked Ladies lore about about all of this. Um but anyway, uh, Justin, who um, is uh, quite a Weezer enthusiast, I believe he was president actually of the Weezer Fan Club for some number of years. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, he's, uh, I, and um, his uh, podcast is called Weezer, uh, and then in parentheses, and one more thing. And so each week he talks about something to do with the band Weezer, and then something else that's been uh, sitting in his mind. So the most recent one, he talks about Weezer, and then he talks about shopping malls from the 80s. Uh, sure. And so I, we would encourage you to check it out. Um, and it's available much like our podcast, wherever you get your podcast. It's, you know, RSSS and then RS, RSS, I think. Is that, or is it I I can't remember how many S's in the RSS, but
0: two. RSS.com. You know,
1: Autofill is when I check our metrics. <laughs> so check that out. But speaking of our metrics, we wanted to thank you all because this last um, fortnight we've cracked, uh, comfortably cracked 1,000 listeners.
0: Yes, a thousand, a thousand downloads. So I, I think there's actually a, an applause required there. I right. may actually add some, some special effects in here, maybe a little yeah. cheering sound. Absolutely. Um, maybe if a I can figure, if I can find a, a free one, but yeah. uh, but really thrilling. Um, you know, it uh, it really is to you know. All jokes aside, uh, we, when we started doing this, we we were going to be thrilled if we hit a hundred. Uh, downloads and uh, and going over thousands is really something quite exciting. So, thank you, listener, for uh, for being a part of this.
1: We do, and Ken and I were actually joking. The um, we uh, we really appreciate this in part because whenever we write something, we're always thrilled if three people read it and one person cites it. So the if fact any. that yeah yeah right <laughs> if any yeah yeah so I'm definitely uh, definitely over on a few things, but they uh, but so so we're thrilled and we and we do really appreciate that you've made us part of your um your commute or whatever else you don't need to tell us necessarily you don't need to write in and let us know what what part of your life we've become a part of but we appreciate it nonetheless and, and so
0: and we do have some listener mail on that too actually oh
1: fantastic go for it
0: yeah yeah so we have the usual email from our, it's right, our Ken, uh,
1: if if a listener were to write in with some listener
0: mail where would they write into uh New Brunswick archaeology at gmail.com okay and uh and, and we do have the le- listener mail. We've got two new um we've got their usual spam uh from Podcorn, which uh uh is another one of these great uh I think they're trying to get us to sell stuff on the podcast as far as I can tell. But well, how uh, much what uh, do
1: they want us to sell? We could we could perhaps talk to them. I don't know. <laughs>
0: I, I haven't clicked on many of these ones, so. It, uh, so, dear of, listener, of... if
1: you're a representative for the Balvenie Scotch Company and you would like us to move some merch, we are happy to say nice things for your. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, we don't. It doesn't have to be a half-empty bottle of Courvoisier every week. It could yeah, be. No. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so David Black uh, enjoyed the intrusive feature one B episode, and he uh, he's asking us if we're going to be podcasting from the Canadian Archaeological Association meetings in member uh the first week of May.
1: So uh, Dave, we are indeed, and in fact, dear listener, we might try to get Dave Black on this because this will be a hit piece, but um, we're doing Papers in Honor of Dave Black at the is this, this year.
0: Yeah, and so uh, so uh, join us in member two um, or uh, online as well. Uh, somehow, uh, there's going to be a virtual component of that session. Is that correct?
1: Uh, yes, there is, but I'm not actually sure if it's a virtual that you can watch it virtually.
0: Oh, okay. All right. So uh, don't take my word on that, listener. Uh, you may not be able to attend virtually. So just come to Member 2 and have fun.
1: And in fact, um, the listener should know that, we, that that Ken and I have been uh, somewhat bewildered by the CAAs. For, what, when, when was the one we did in Quebec? Was it 2019?
0: Uh, that must have been 2019, Yeah, right? Yeah. yeah, that
1: was when I first really realized that. I didn't realize how the CAAs worked. And uh, it's been an adventure ever since.
0: My my understanding is that it is, uh, it is not an easy, uh, an easy process. That's, uh, no, I'm sure it's not. Yeah. So yeah. Um. we also have email from Ruby History Hound, uh, who oh, said cool. she enjoys, I, I assume she uh, enjoys the show and all the information that we give to the listeners. Always looks forward to seeing new episodes pop up on her feed and has suggested that the title of the show should be Chasing New Brunswick.
1: Okay. Well, we will take that under advisement. Uh, Ruby History Hand, uh, Ruby, I believe, has an Instagram actually that follows our Instagram. Oh, know? okay. Ruby may actually be—I'm um, trying to remember exactly—but I, I, a large dog who each Uh-oh. year fe- or each maybe each week, I'm not sure, features a series of you know, two or three history-oriented podcasts and summarizes them. No way. Yeah, and actually very generously gave us one uh, on an earlier one where she kind of gave the bullet point version of, of what we talked about. It was very nice.
0: That's fantastic. Oh. Yeah,
1: so I, I would encourage them, uh, the listener to check out uh, Ruby's uh, Instagram.
0: Okay. If I were I on Instagram, what... I would also check her out.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's where the hound comes in, I believe.
0: Yeah, so I'll need you yeah. to screenshot that and send it to me. Yeah,
1: yeah, sure. <laughs> the I, love, I mean, as the, the listener has probably gotten the sense that just from my tone of voice that I'm, I'm on Instagram because I've carefully curated my Instagram. They can tell this from my slightly allergic um, nasal thing going on right now, which is that uh, I'm a bit of a cat enthusiast. So my Instagram pretty much produces exclusively videos of cats in bodegas. So uh, it's the best thing going on social media as far as I'm concerned.
0: There's a, there's a great bookstore downtown here in uh, Lethbridge called the analog bookshop. Oh, cool. And, uh, and they have a resident cat that hangs oh, out great. has it's like little perch above the doorway. And uh, will just like kind of hang around and follow you around as you're looking at books.
1: That's fantastic. So the, uh, distance we're talking about cats, I was in, um, Death Valley, as you know, mm-hmm. which, you know, straddles, uh, Nevada and Las Vegas. And so, um, but at one point we stayed in, uh, in Amargosa Valley and the only place to eat in Amargosa Valley really is um, this kind of uh, casino, which is called long streets. And it's, it's a like, it's they basically like the place we were saying, the Amargosa opera house, they're like, well, if you drive nine miles, that's a thousand kilometers for the Canadian listener, you'll get to long <laughs> streets. And then, you know, maybe 80 miles later, you'll get to somewhere else. I, you know, I don't know where. And so we went to long streets and, the food I have to say, you know, and, and the listener should know that long Shies is not paying for this, this spot, but the food is very good. But, um, you had to get a drink from the, uh, the like video gaming table or whatever at the, you know, this bar and there's this cat walking around. And so I go up to get a, get a drink for, uh, for me and, and my companion. And, um, and I, I said, what's the cat's name? And the one looked at me as if, as if no one had ever asked what the cat's name was and she just looked at me, she said, jackpot <laughs> that's funny and then jackpot promptly went and just kind of lounged across someone's video gaming terminal so i thought jackpot knows what's up
0: that's fantastic
1: but, yeah no it's fun um do we have any other listener mail this weekend
0: uh no other mi- listener mail this week Nope.
1: okay well fantastic so ken i believe that um we still even though we're taking the um advice of history hound under ruby history hound under uh advisement we at least at the moment still have an open competition to rename this podcast and we should uh hear perhaps what a lucky listener would win were they to send in the name that this podcast eventually adopts and what is that
0: well so it's uh it's getting nice out you said it's quite warm in new hampshire um and what 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 what's something that makes you think of summer uh, peaches. Peaches. And so we're going to be talking a little bit about Georgia today in the context of the transitional archaic. And did you know what today is? I did not. What is it? It is International Peach Cobbler Day. No uh, kidding. And, and yeah, and, and, uh, and so this week's prize, if you were the listener to suggest, uh, uh, the name of the new podcast would be, uh, an all expenses paid round trip with, uh, Gabe and I to, the Georgia Peach Festival, 27th annual, or sorry, 37th annual Georgia oh, Peach wow. Festival, uh in Fort Valley, um, June 2nd and 3rd, or in Byron, Georgia, on June 10th, which is actually my birthday. So oh, um, we would get to celebrate my birthday together. Um okay, and the at- listener
1: doesn't necessarily know that Ken and, By- and and Lord Byron, both literary <laughs> gentlemen, have the same uh, the same birthday.
0: <laughs> and uh and so uh at this georgia peach festival um even though international peach cobbler today cobbler day is today april 13th uh at the georgia peach festival you can get the world's largest peach cobbler um, which is made every year to exacting standards uh it measures 11 by 5 feet which in metric is 3.35 by 1.52 meters um and, uh, uh, alongside this other thing, uh, you, there are two different types of peaches that you can get down there. There's clingstone oh, wow. and, and freestone. Um, uh, oh, wow. and, and that, uh, August is peach month. So they really spread out a uh, celebration of peaches throughout the year, um, with a, an, a peach cobbler day to kind of get you ready for the year. Maybe you're just taking all the frozen peaches from last year and throwing them in a cobbler. But, uh, 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 if you, if you listener are the one to suggest our next, uh, um uh, to to suggest our new our new podcast title. Um you could be joining us in Georgia enjoying peaches at the 37th annual Georgia Peach Festival.
1: I, I have to say, listen, I really hope we're seeing you there. This sounds fantastic. Um yeah. the uh are are you uh have you been to Georgia before, Ken?
0: I haven't. I've heard you rave reviews of the Savannah River though.
1: Well, of Savannah, yeah. Of Savannah. Very Savannah. Yeah. Savannah yeah. Um but no, I, I bet they do a great peach cover. What town in Georgia is this in? Do you know?
0: Fort Valley.
1: Huh, at Byron. Um, not...
0: it's, it's such a big festival. They actually spread it out over two weekends in two different towns.
1: No kidding. That's great. Yeah. The, uh, the listener who, who may have acquired recently a New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast sticker uh, will be relieved to know that the counties in Georgia are more sensibly arranged. They're not that sort of spokes on a wheel thing that we seem to do in New Brunswick. <laughs> that the... Uh, the, uh, we should do a whole thing. I mean, I don't know if we can get someone that's like a county expert, but to describe those counties
0: in New Brunswick. I do wonder what actually like resulted in that layout.
1: Yeah, I mean, it it really seems like they were sort of like, well, I like bicycles. Let's make the whole thing look like spokes off a bicycle. Yeah, but That's not what we're talking about this week. We're going to talk about the transitional archaic. And so we're going to talk about about 4,000 to 3,000 years ago. And so can I say at the, at the get-go that that we debated a little bit whether or not we should combine the transitional archaic and the early woodland which we're going to talk about in 14 days. Um, and we decided not. And that's because the early woodland session is is likely to take, no, oh, I don't know, four or five hours. Probably you're gonna to want to listen to it on two and a half speed, you know, or maybe save it for a long car trip. So we've we decided to carve this off. And um I certainly can have to say I don't have any clue what's going on during this period. I find
0: it baffling. It it is. uh, Yeah, there's some, there's some, so we, we kind of dusted a a little bit of a a preview when we left off with the late archaic and as kind of abruptly saying, and then it ends. (laughs) And, and, uh, and, and in its wake, something different is happening and and what it is, it's not really clear, but it's got kind of connections all the way up. I mean, as, as we saw in the early archaic kind of connections all the way up to Eastern seaboard, um, uh, at least as it relates to coming into the Maritimes and, and certainly some broader connections with uh, um, groups in the great lakes region. And, and uh, but, but certainly other than technology um, there's, there's not a whole lot of real clear and even technologically, it's not totally cohesive. Yeah. Um,
1: or it, but, I uh, mean, maybe it's too cohesive. Maybe that's the problem it's too, too many, um, too many, Points to too many names or, or too few points, too many names. I'm not really sure what the phrase would be, but
0: yeah. Typo, um, typological conundrums. That's uh... yeah.
1: So the, the period we're talking about, it's something it's called the, what's a, we've been calling the traditional archaic. Sometimes it's called the terminal archaic in Southern New England. Sometimes they call it the final archaic, which you can have. It's very ominous. you know The final <laughs> archaic.
2: <Okay. laughs>
1: <laughs> Easy there, Ken. We might've just gotten sued by uh, <laughs> or kicked off the air. Um So, When we think about the transitional archaic, we're thinking about it's really this kind of phenomenon that between Georgia, very appropriate given the uh, potential winnings this week, to the Maritimes is that about 4,000 years ago, there's this kind of unique toolkit. Um, And so I I realize, listener, every time I've said we introduce any period, I say, well, and there's a unique toolkit. And this is not that unique. Don't worry it's there's a toolkit that's different than the one before it and what it is is it involves these broad spears and so ken you're the lithics guy what's a broad spear look like
0: broad spear um i mean simply kind of looks almost like a uh how you would draw a christmas tree um it's uh it's sort of a broad triangle um i guess it's not as you don't have as many sort of like the listener can't see i'm drawing with my fingers right yeah, now yeah but uh, uh, you don't have the little branches that might come off of a Christmas tree, but it's sort of like a broad triangle. Um, in some cases, they, uh, uh, so they're so they're sort of squat and wide, um, tend to have broad shoulders, which means like they come, the triangle down at the base comes in and then sort of tapers into um, either with broad, what we call notching, which is sort of the, you've removed the corners off of what I guess would be a diamond shape um, to make kind of a U shape on either side. And then sometimes they have these straight very wide bases, um, which would have been that what we call the haft element. So that would have been the part that's sort of attached to, you know, a, a, a dart point or a spear or whatever. Um, and we call them broad spears simply because they are broad and they look like they were probably spears. Um, uh, they're probably a projectile of some kind. Um, and likely were not thrown as a spear, but um uh, more likely kind of like an atlatl dart or something like that. But uh um yeah, yeah. So and and they're made usually made on um uh, uh volcanic rocks so very sort of hard um kind of dull colored rocks uh uh generally felsic and, and mafic volcanics as we call them so uh, felsic meaning sort of lighter colored mafic darker colored uh volcanic rocks um and uh yeah and and they sort of they've got a number of different forms um but uh some of the rec- most recognizable ones we'll talk about today are are sort of in the early um transitional archaic Uh, You've got our Atlantic uh, blades or Atlantic implement blades sometimes. I think there's the same as they're sometimes called Mansion Inn as well. Oh, I worried
1: you'd say that, Ken. But yeah, there are Mansion Inn blade. There's the from the Mansion Inn site in southern New England, which Dana Dinkow has worked at. um, But those are thrown in here. Yeah, for sure.
0: And uh, and you also have um, in like the Great Lakes region, you have uh, what are called Genesee blades that are sort of these uh, sort of another take on a broad spear and as we talked about um sort of originating in georgia you have what's called like the savannah river uh or um uh what is it called lehigh or kena crispin uh style um points and and basically these are all kind of different temp uh different names for what is sort of a broadly applicable broad point template basically
1: absolutely so um and this just like the listeners have heard about other periods, right? So we we archaeologists have to think about all this stuff just in terms of what's left behind, right? So we're sort of sorting through this, but we've got these basically stone tools, but along with this, um, for this transition archaic, we see stuff that could steatite, which is soapstone. So it's a soft stone. Um, which it's possible, I think like Ken Sassman has argued that that the kind of you can make these sort of dishes out of steatite which may be sort of predecessors to ceramics in the region, which we'll talk about more in the coming weeks. There are groundstone adzes. There are grooved axes, which are sometimes the adzes and the axes sometimes appear in caches. And there are banner stones, and those are uh, weights for atlatls. And an atlatl is a spear chucker. And there are drills. And, Ken, I understand that uh, I recall... so. So Ken and I went to uh, our master's program together and uh, Ken had also had his undergraduate where we did our master's and so had on display, I believe, uh, in the, the department we were in at UNB, a, uh so a drill that he'd written up.
0: Yeah, uh, so um, as part of uh, a senior undergrad honors class, I think, project, we, uh, the honors class, um, basically, so the George Frederick Clark artifact collection, which was donated to UNB by uh, George Frederick Clark's family. Um, uh, so UNB has it as a teaching collection now. And we should say um, we'll, we'll
1: probably do a whole episode on Clark at some point.
0: But he's an yeah.
1: important evocational archaeologist in New Brunswick.
0: And a dentist.
1: And a, and a hypnotist.
0: And a hypnotist, really? <laughs>
1: did, uh, did you know that? He,
0: no. My understanding
1: is he basically paid his way through dental school as a hypnotist.
0: Huh. Yeah. Well, there you go. Um, so, uh, uh, groundstone. A listener Plankstone. can't see that
1: that that Ken just had had his eyes totally turn into having a a, a pocket watch swing in front of him. I, I just do this once in a while just to see what'll happen. You know, it's it's the people that know Ken in person will know that sometimes it's hard to get a word in edgewise, but that's how I've been managing it on this podcast. Is I just every once in a while <laughs> I whip out my pocket watch and I I slow him down a little bit so I can have something to
0: say. Um. So yeah. So I I. Uh, we were basically given each an artifact to um, analyze and describe. Uh, the one that I got was a um, uh, what is a sort of flared bit, uh, flake stone drill. Um, it's about, if I remember correctly, about seven or eight centimeters long. It's broken, um, and and the type of break that's on it indicates um, what's characteristic of a lot of these drills, and that is probably some kind of push pull wear. So these weren't being used spun like a drill they were probably being used as some kind of like a, um, a pecking or sort of light drilling tool. Um, but there's a lot kind of, of like, like an of, Yeah, kind of like an all, Um and, and they would have had really long stems on them. And what's not clear is whether is whether or not these are um, sort of intentionally made drills, or these are just basically points that had been sharpened down um, to the point that they, you know, like, I, I think these are sort of, Di- these are diagnostic of Susquehanna. These drills appear a lot, um, but it's not clear if the drill was is something that was intentionally made or if it was one of these repurposed tools that then was turned into a drill, which we see um, broken and abandoned a lot of these sites. Um, um, so You see finished drills as well, but these aren't necessarily the intended tool to make. They may be just a repurposed tool um, and go from there.
1: Cool. And we'll return to this drill thing when we talk about uh potential implications about um this period along with uh watercraft technology uh in a few minutes. But um and then also in southern New England, I don't think there are any of these known from the Maritimes, but cremation burials are a common transitional archaic thing in New England. Um so a lot of the way we think about uh This period. And so you'll hear this phrase, sometimes people, even instead of transition archaic, they'll say Susquehanna, right? And so Susquehanna refers to this kind of big overarching cultural thing, which derives from the mid-Atlantic. And the, actually, I don't know if we, we, Ken and I don't always talk about the input of where we want to go necessarily with this podcast, but the, uh, but um, the under, like the kind of classical understanding of Susquehanna was that it was this kind of intrusive, cultural things so that, you know, maybe 4,000 years ago, 1,300 years ago, a bunch of people from the Mid-Atlantic moved rapidly from the Mid-Atlantic, basically north and east, and sort of inhabited this broader region. I'm fairly skeptical of that as a as a concept, like as a population replacement concept, although I think it's clear that something big and cultural happened around this period. and But reflecting that in a t- sort of cultural historical terms, the Susquehanna, that broad, perceived as migratory thing, um, is broken into these phases, and these phases are based on, well, I guess we should say what a phase is, and that. Uh, so, what a phase is, yeah, yeah. So, so Ken, I, the listener can't see that Ken is smirking now, because he's watching me back myself into a cultural historical corner here, where it's like, oh, we should say what a phase is, and then pretty soon I'll have to describe a horizon. And then I'll have to describe you know, a tradition.
0: You know whole, all these other. Well, we weird... talk about whole cultures as well, so we're gonna have to.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, we're, what was that old David Sanger um, line, "Taming the taxonomy"? Or was that somebody else? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, but but what a phase is is it's kind of this like, you know, subset of a of a of a broader cultural thing. So it's this idea that it's it's spatially and temporally limited.
0: Um, and usually usually ends up being like there's everything changes like the projectile points change but everything else sort of stays the same so they bury their people the same way they live in the same kind of places and stuff like that but something has changed within like maybe the toolkit for example which is sort of what characterizes the phases of susquehanna
1: yeah the listener who may have just you know traded in you know a two thousand and 12 Subaru for a 2022 Subaru may wonder about their own cultural affinities based on this sort of system that archaeologists devise. <laughs> yeah. You know, everything's the same. I just, it's not a station wagon anymore. It's a crossover SUV.
0: Yeah. Um, as long as, as long as you get the, uh, as long as you get the head gasket changed at a hundred thousand kilometers. That's the...
1: Yeah, exactly. So it and stays the, and, the same. Yeah. And the engine wrecker um, belt there, I can't remember what it's called.
0: Yeah. Timing belt. The timing,
1: timing belt. belt. Yeah. 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 Um, but anyway, so, reasons we'll maybe unpack in a minute here but the the first phase of this from like 4,000 to 3,600 years ago is often called Watertown and then from about thirty two hundred to 2,700 is usually called Orient uh, sorry uh, sorry Atlantic is about 4,000 to 3,600 Watertown 3,600 to 3,200 then sometimes in between here there's a phase that no one has ever been able to figure out what it is but it's sometimes called Coburn As far as I can tell, Coburn is kind of a fever dream. And uh, I've never really heard the even people that believe in Coburn, they don't always believe in Coburn like later in their careers. And then later, they orient, which is 3200 to, you know, 2700 or, you know, whatever. It's still the early woodland, basically, which we'll talk about in a fortnight. Yeah. Um, But these don't matter if you just really care about New Brunswick archaeology because none of these are really particularly clear in New Brunswick. You know, maybe in Nova Scotia at the Boswell site where Mike Deal and, John Campbell and these guys worked. It seems like there's some, you know, consistency of these things, but otherwise not so much. Does that yeah. kind of jive with your understanding, Ken?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I think that there are there are a lot of these, the phases, you don't see the, sort of the, the breakdown of them. You see some of these type um, uh, index fossil artifacts, right? So which we, what we call these diagnostic artifacts, these one that you can probably associate with these. So each of these phases, Atlantic, Watertown, and orient tend to have fairly distinctive um, takes on the broad spear form, um, or or you know, uh, what what later becomes small uh, uh, narrow stem points, as they call them in Great Lakes. But uh, you know, by the orient phase, you have these are not so broad spears anymore, um, uh, and they the, they've changed the way that they have the haft element looks on them. But you see a lot of orient I went from phase baby cut stuff- back
1: to baby had back, is what you're saying.
0: yeah uh so you see laughing like a man
1: who may nervously have to cut this out to maintain our family rating but
0: (laughs) it's just just more editing i have to do later (laughs) um so you see a lot of these orient phase artifacts but not a whole lot of like dated orient phase assemblages um which we'll talk about in a moment although there is at least one convincingly Orient phase assemblage in the Lower Wolostock region at Gemseg, which we'll talk about later. But yeah, the, I mean, the the whole Susquehanna um, suite doesn't seem to appear in New Brunswick, um, which is which is different than elsewhere, um, which yeah. has led some people to speculate about you know if this was a group of people coming into the region, um, they they looked to have maybe stopped somewhere around the Lower Wolostock region and went no further.
1: Which would be really interesting. I mean, the, it's, but, and, and, and so we're going to keep having these things where Ken and I say it would be very interesting because this is a confusing few thousand years that we are launching into. And so, um, but it's less confusing at some places in Maine, which I think is interesting. Um, so, um, if we talk about if we just sort of think in, a, in broad terms, right, we've talked in the past about the Maritime Peninsula, this sort of eastern Wabanaki homeland, right? You know, Maine, Maritime, most of Maine, Maritime Provinces. Um, within this region, if you were just to kind of average this region, um, much most of what we know about the Trinidad Archaic is from the Turner Farm site. And so this is in Penobscot Cafe <laughs> in Maine. And so they, I don't think it's speaking out of school to say that David Sanger once described describe the Turner Farm site as a telephone-shaped booth a telephone booth shaped look at what Maine prehistory should be yeah uh this idea that it's this this unique site that has more time in it than any other site in um uh, in Maine
0: and so and, and what the listener doesn't realize is, uh may not realize is that we spend a lot of time in you know in the far northeast in the maritimes talking about how we want to challenge like outside models you know that uh that uh, we we build our culture. We've been building our culture history off of these broader Northeast manifestations, and that what we really need is to kind of build a very localized culture history. Um, but we really end up. Oh, well, we, the Turner Farm essentially became the replacement for Richie. Yeah, so yeah, right. Like, instead of elsewhere in the Northeast, everything references back to Turner Farm.
1: Yeah, and, and Richie Richie for the listener who's not in this is a is a is a book about. Uh, basically organized it. it's by bill Ritchie, and it organizes it's the projectile points of new york it's called something like that and it organized it's basically a, you know it's almost like an antiques guide to <laughs> to projectile yeah. points from new york um one well, of course bill Ritchie was uh bruce Parks' mentor from turner farm
0: oh really yeah yeah was he was he a supervisor or was he just uh they just worked together
1: um mentor i think not a supervisor is my recollection okay. but um the uh yeah, so um my understanding is actually that's part of why this is totally talking out school now, but that Turner Farm maybe nugging feet was he was borrowing Bill Ritchie's equipment. And Bill oh. Ritchie only had uh I believe we call it ominously imperial uh units <laughs> uh, on his tape measures. Huh. Yeah. Well, there you go. Anyway, yeah. Um but so like the you know the Transitional archaic is mostly understood um, in this region from the Turner Farm site. And that's the reason for this, in part, is that Turner Farm is well-preserved. And so check out uh, Bruce Borg's book, The The Silver Shunders. I think we referenced this last week. and uh, But what's unique about it is it has that uh, maritime archaic period we talked about last week. And then it's got Susquehanna stuff, which is cool. And it also has very importantly shell. And so, as shell breaks down, it releases calcium carbonate into the soil. And so, what happens is if you ever tried to like garden in, you know, Maine or New Brunswick or Nova Scotia, the soil is super acidic. But as the shell breaks down, it makes the soil more basic. And so, you get animal bone preserves um, so you can interpret what people were eating. And that's kind of a unique thing um, about shell bearing sites so sites that have soft shell clam that are breaking down and so what happened at turner farm was it became apparent that rather than this sort of swordfish and cod specialization we talked about i keep saying last last week but really i mean four weeks ago
2: it <laughs> I, yeah it was
0: it was it was uh, it was several weeks ago now but uh, yeah. the last episode your last full less, episode.
1: Full of ep- last normal episode. Yeah. Yeah. Um, where we talked about maritime archaic people being into swordfish and cod. Um, what actually happens is that in the transition archaic, you know, 3,800, 4,000 years ago, people are more into the kinds of foods that we're going to talk about in the next fortnight. So they're more into eating soft shell clam. They're more into bear. They're more into cervids. And that's what archaeologists, when they're feeling very serious, like to call deer-like animals uh they're more into birds they're more into sculpins they're more into sturgeon and they're more into cod right so what we've got is this kind of it's a broader kind of pattern of what people are eating and it much more resembles what people continue to eat for the next you know chunk of time between four thousand years ago and european contact yeah does that jive with your understanding ken
0: yeah yeah and uh and some evidence too of um uh, like tree nuts as well, um, right uh, at uh, these are these cobble hearths, I guess that yeah. uh, um was that at was that at Boswell or, was it, or were they at Turner farm?
1: My understanding is actually that they're at a number of small and less interesting sites than those. so the the one I think of when I think of that is the waterville Winslow Bridge, okay, um which shockingly is between Waterville, Maine, and Winslow, Maine, uh, which
0: place I- the Hannafords, right, Gabe?
1: It is just. <laughs> That's an inside joke that exactly two of our listeners have just laughed at. Ken. Uh, <laughs> but the, uh, the, uh, the listener will be shocked as based on my ability to easily describe projectile points. I'm also very good at giving directions. And, uh, yeah, and it was not the first time Ken was lost based on, uh, that... Brineck, uh directions. I don't think, but, um, no, it's not just past the Hannaford, it's just past the farmer's market and towards the CVS, but oh, okay, <laughs> yeah. there you go. <laughs> um, but, uh, there's also a, a fairly good Chinese restaurant uh, near there. Yeah, you. It's literally every town in New England. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> and then you hit the Hannafords. Um, yeah. but uh, but no, and and there at uh, Art Speaks, these guys that uh made made the uh uh it's not the main state archaeologist technically, but essentially the main state archaeologist, the senior archaeologist, think for the Maine Historic Preservation Commission. Um does all the Department of Transportation archaeology. And so when they were putting this new bridge, found this really interesting kind of cobble heart. And so it's uh, stones mixed with firecracked rock. And they hypothesized that potentially it might be a place where you process tree nuts, so things like um, acorns. And so um, this is kind of interesting because it, it raises this notion, right, where we've talked a lot about a kind of unknowable coastal occupation, right? Because of sea level rise, so sea, sea yeah. levels are rising and they're knocking out um, what we could know from the coast. So we've had just these interior sites. Now we're starting to think about the coast and the interior and that actually pivots to where New Brunswick becomes really important in this whole discussion. So... Um, this is the the moment where Ken and I realized we've laid out the show notes somewhat awkwardly. I
0: was just gonna <laughs> say, I was like, "Where do we jump to now?"
1: <laughs> but anyway, so I had this thought. I was like, "Oh yeah, we should we should just I you know in my mind when I was flipping through these earlier, I thought, you know what we should do? We should talk about that fish weir we forgot to talk about twenty eight days ago.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but the Sebastian Cook fish weir complex.
1: Yeah, that's, that's the one. Yeah. Uh, did you want so, to talk about that?
0: well fairly famous um uh, a major uh, not a not a hukuna errata i guess because we didn't get anything wrong but it was an it's error a lacuna errata look L- hey there you go <laughs> <laughs> We need a new song actually um and uh uh fairly famous fish weir complex that dates mostly to the late Ar- uh, uh, late archaic with possibly as early as a middle archaic component to it is that If I remember my understanding. Yeah. Um, And essentially um, it was uh, identified because a, uh, one of the dams in the area had basically been, uh, was doing an annual letdown and it was sort of a lower than normal letdown for some kind of repair. Um, And so um, uh, for the listener, you might be familiar with when you put in a hydroelectric dam that creates a head pond Um, for archeology span that also creates basically a, a massive lake over what we're probably, occupied spaces for thousands of years. So, you know, case in point, like the Mactaquack Dam in New Brunswick, um, you know, something like over 100 kilometers of head pond um, above the Mactaquack Dam uh, sort of submerged a, a fairly substantial Walastoquig uh, and, and Wabanaki landscape, basically, that, that we, we actually have very little information about before the dam went in. Um, so when these drawdowns happen, they're actually very important. You can recover a lot of information from them. Uh, Jim Peterson and some other folks from the University of Maine, is that correct?
1: Yeah, you to in at Farmington.
0: At Farmington, yeah. yeah. Um and uh where where they used to have the UMF Arc program that uh, yeah, uh, Gabe and his partner actually you guys met at UMF Arc, did you not?
1: No, we we'd met before, but it the 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 romantic interlude began there, yeah.
0: Began at the began, you know, screening through something.
1: Well, I mean, it was fantastic. I mean, you, you never know how to meet someone until you've uh, that they they uh, wet screened all their features, right? And they did 100% <laughs> flotation. So you, you have a fair bit of time to get to know someone at that uh, <laughs> yeah. in such a situation, yeah.
0: Um. So so the drawdown happens. Uh. And uh, they go and do some survey work, and they identify all of these uh, what look like basically um, sticks um, poking out out of the mud. Um, and these are actually stakes of a fairly large and long occupied weir complex. And so a weir is basically a structure that you put usually at the mouth of a river. Um, and it's, a. Uh, uh, there's a couple of different ways you can design this. Uh, is it Roger Lewis did a thesis yeah. Yeah, on yeah. this At from, Mun, I was believe. it Mun, um, uh, Roger Lewis who works for the Nova Scotia museum. Is that correct? He certainly or did. I
1: actually don't know if he still does.
0: Yeah. Um, anyway, um, so there's a few different ways that, uh, Wabanaki would have built these weirs. Um, but essentially it boils down to you build a structure and you catch fish. Um, anadromous fish or uh, um, a fish that are basically moving up and down rivers so that spend you know half their lives in the ocean and come in inside and and then run up rivers to lay their eggs and then go back out so you catch them on these funnel it's a funnel yeah it looks like a funnel
1: yeah yeah it's it's basically a a giant net
0: to catch fish um and so uh they demonstrated with they had a number of tools radiocarbon dates that indicated that the site had been used as early as the middle archaic but heavily throughout the late archaic and then persists into the transitional archaic. And I think into the woodland or not,
1: you know, Ken, if we prepped for these, we would know this, but they, uh, but yeah, I think it does persist. I, my recollection is because it is well radio that it, it persisted into the, into the woodland.
0: and And so it ties in with this whole thing that we talked about a few weeks ago about, you know, sort of complex behaviors among hunter gatherers at this time, you know, this would have been a fairly, um, uh, organized group effort to go out there and build this uh, weir structure uh, and certainly maintain it and what it looks like based on the distribution of these posts throughout the um, the area around the mouth of this river that you know that groups were moving it was moving around and being kind of rejigged all the time um, and so probably indicates that groups are coming back there se- like every year or seasonally um and being reused over millennia basically and and so that persists into the transitional archaic um and and what we know from other sites um like for example at uh, at you know that uh, um mike deal and uh john camp jack campbell jack campbell a uh, john no. right john sorry jack john campbell Andrew. is the jack campbell is the former goalie of the toronto maple leafs that's why i'm oh, getting really? screwed up here yeah I think oh, I said fantastic. Jack Campbell earlier too. Oh,
1: whoops! We're sorry, John.
0: But let's just yeah. wind that back here.
1: No, let's just leave it. We might as well let the listener know what sort of what sort of pain we go through as we. <laughs> what the listener can't see is that I'm surrounded by ten thousand baseball cards right now. So it's been a bit of a sports merchandise <laughs> kind of afternoon.
0: At least one tonight. That's The last game yeah, yeah. of regular season. Um, so uh mike deal and and uh john campbell have written about um uh this coastal interior seasonal round um where groups maybe are spending summer on the coast um and uh and then are you know maybe processing anadromous fish on the interior and this ties in with this notion that maybe the sebasticook fish weir represents sort of this continuation that kind of coincides with what we're seeing in nova scotia and that the same kind of practice is going on in the interior in maine um
1: yeah which, um, so we're we're starting to think. Did I ever tell you? Sorry, this, I'm just totally interrupting myself here. But the uh, I held one of those fishwear steaks.
0: That's incredible. Like, I mean, yeah. they, they, what's what's incredible? The list what the listener doesn't realize is you should really read this article, which we'll put in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they they recovered because. This is a drowned site. So this is a site that's generally underwater. When, when sites are preserved underwater, you usually end up having what are called anoxic conditions. And so think about the bog bodies in the old world um, uh, where you have basically there's things are submerged, oxygen can't get in and deteriorate organic um, um, perishables. And so they not only had all these stakes preserved that showed very clear indications that like groundstone axes were being used to cut these things to shape sort of to make them pointy um which i'm guessing this is sort of one of the ones that you may have seen yeah
1: yeah or yeah exactly yeah
0: but they also recovered like incredible textiles like there's a there's a fragment of a birch bark basket that's been recovered from there
1: yeah and um this was like my understanding this is part of peterson's research was in um textiles baskets this kind of thing um but no it was incredibly cool it was uh My understanding is half of them went somewhere for preservation and half of them stayed at the main state museum for preservation. And, uh, but one of the main state museum ones I got to hold and felt very cool. I have to say, very Um, cool. there's a great picture. Uh, my parents actually, when this was discovered, um, uh, Jim Peterson holding one of the stakes was in the, uh, was in color on a front page of a section of the Bangor daily news. No, no way. And yeah. And, um, my parents had just this file labeled Maine. And, uh, and at one point uh, it was home and they showed me, it It was kind of cool. neat picture. I'll send you a scan at some point. Uh, It was pretty cool. But part of what we're thinking about then though, is how these um, folks are starting to really exploit both coast and interior. And so when we're thinking about that, we're thinking about watercraft. And so, this is gonna be continuing just on the, um, the listener can't see this, but Ken and I will persistently just shrug and say, eh, I don't know, I don't know what happened, you know?
0: And, it's a and weird time we, period. Yeah, and we've talked about, a little bit about how technology was interpreted as like, maybe indicating groundstone tools in the early archaic, right?
1: Because of groundstone
0: tools, canoes, yeah. Grand, uh, dugout canoes, yeah, sorry. Uh, groundstone yeah. tools were indicating some dugout canoe technology. What we see in the transition. Ken, case, Ken is
1: maybe two thirds into a covassier, cool yeah, isn't
0: it? <laughs> uh, <laughs> is sort of a re-emphasis on flakestone technology, um, which um, and a number of tools like so these drills that we talked about already, um, scraping tools, uh, and and particular types of like kind of knives and bifaces and things like that, that uh, tools that we think might be particularly well suited toward the production of um. And I don't know if this is a direct quote, but this is in my notes for a lecture. Uh, A shift toward lightweight, portable, and swift-moving birch bark vessel technology. And that may be a quote from your book.
1: It doesn't ring a bell, but that doesn't mean... So I had to say, when I wrote the chapter, Susquehanna and Early Woodland, I was in a very dark place because I didn't know what I was talking about.
0: (laughs) So, um, uh, but but one of the things that um, Matt Betts and Gabe Point out in their book, though, is that like, um, well, we, well, there there indications both in the um, changes in environment that seem to indicate that Birch Park would be uh, readily available at this time, uh, and changes in technology which might kind of lend toward um, the the development of sort of this new vessel technology that would would cast you up and down rivers very, or that you'd be able to convey yourself up and down rivers very quickly. Um, so, which would facilitate this sort of seasonal round. Um, uh while these things are all in place, the likelihood that birch bark canoes just sort of completely replaced dugout canoes is all is pretty far fetched. This mm-hmm. wasn't sort of a wholesale replacement. Um, you know, like there's even e- evidence, you know, in the post-contact, for example, that like uh uh, you know, even though birch bark vessel technology been perfected in the, you know, subsequent thousands of years, um, uh wabanaki groups were even using like hide to to make uh canoes in some cases so
1: right those are the yeah. the bull boats
0: the bull boats yeah
1: yeah so and uh and then kim Spar and colleagues found a dugout canoe from the late woodlands on Cape porous yeah, right. main somewhat near the bush compound that's the former president who were both the our two former presidents um for canadian listeners that's just like a prime minister
0: um well it's it's really not though no, I know it's not at all yeah uh, it's it's what Pierre polyev envisions being a, a
1: Prime yeah, yeah. minister a Prime minister with a God complex yeah uh, but um so but we kind of pull this in okay so we've got this kind of anthropological question that Ken and I have been hinting around and that is what is the transitional archaic right what is the Susquehanna thing and a lot of the discussion around this has really, hovered around this idea that Susquehanna, that the Transition Archaic are this kind of migration into the far northeast or the northeast. Um and this has a lot to do with a guy named uh, Irving Rouse, who my understanding is his friends called him Ben Rouse. That's uh do you know do you know how to know if someone went to Yale, Ken? It's to find <laughs> out that instead of Irving, Irving gets turned into Ben. That's
0: that's that's a that's yeah, a, yeah. a yearly uh thing. Yeah,
1: we've got a loose association between your nickname and your actual name. Um, okay. The uh, the listener doesn't know this, but Ken's real name is <laughs> <laughs> it's not Kenneth. Let me. Tell you. Um, but that it would be. Um, there should be an identifiable migrating population. You should know where that population came from, right? They should have a sort of real, like, definable homeland. Um. And you would want—I love this phrase. I think this might be a director from Raph. Like contemporaneity of manifestations of a migration event, which just means that you would want it to look as if there was a migration. You would want there to be yeah. a bunch of things repeatedly appearing along the route that people migrated. So you'd want these broad spears to appear repeatedly where they were supposed to appear. You'd want the other stuff to appear, you know, and rapidly, like yeah, all,
0: exactly. either at the same time or very rapidly, like basically. precisely.
1: Yeah. Um, and then you'd want environmental and cultural conditions that were conducive to migration. So like when we we're talking about Clovis, I mean, you've got this, you you wouldn't, but you know, a lot of the Clovis discussion just hinges on, you know, was there an ice free corridor, right? You know, where were people going that had a reasonable place to go? Um, and then, and this is one of Rouse's explanations, I think is interesting, which is that other explanations need to be ruled out, Right. Migration is not like shouldn't be your default interpretation <laughs> for understanding prehistory yep. because it's kind of a niche thing, right? Like it's not all that um, common. And then David Sanger uh, added uh, to this discussion that it should be um, a whole culture, not just a mortuary subsystem, for instance. So what what I think Dave Sanger is saying um, in that is that a published migration should seem like a group of people moved here with all the things that a group of people do, not just one fad,
0: basically. Yeah. yeah cause, cause changes in burial custom could be, you know, could be co- uh, caused by, you know, a group responding to changes in the environment more broadly, you know, like burial custom may change even though the group like ethnically has not changed basically. Like there's not, there aren't, there isn't a new genetic population or a new cultural population basically there that they've just changed a way of doing things.
1: Exactly. And so, um, can I, you're a skeptic about, so we should distinguish between migration and population replacement, right? Which I think has been so many archeologists, I think, um, this is sort of weird. You sort of feel like you're at you're doing this podcast. and You're like, you know, at the bar, you're comfortable to say something. When you're like, oh, it's gonna get recorded, and someone's gonna <laughs> listen or email in if you disagree. with This, but the my understanding is <laughs> sorry, that that perhaps was too passive. I'm fully aware that many archaeologists have interpreted Susquehanna as a population replacement. So, this idea that people showed up in the region and they replaced the people who were there before. So they replaced the people who were from the maritime archaic yeah and there's full disclosure you know if you want an opinion that differs, certainly from mine check out bruce bork's work you know Swordfish hunters uh he spoke about turner farm published by plenum press in 1995 any of those things will have the alternative view to this um and i think ken and i actually may be at probably a sort of 40 60 minority position on this um about population replacement are we still in the minority
0: i don't know i mean like i think so I, I would definitely lean towards this being in the realm of what you could convincingly call a migration. You Me know, too. like I think that yeah. I think that um, much like the sort of Atlantic, like it like really looks like this is a fairly rapid and very different thing that's going on. So there's clearly a new. I think there's something. It's so new and is so different than what was happening before. I think it'd be very hard to argue that this was not a new group of people, right? Like, um, or or that even if it wasn't a new group of people, the people that were there were so being so influenced by somebody else that they rapidly changed. And so, you know, whether it like, I think it's visibly a migration, um, but because the change is so rapid and because what was there before stops happening um, the influence was enough that, that local people were changing what they were doing. And I don't think, I don't think there's a, like for me, I'm not convinced that this was a population replacement. I think without question, this was some kind of, this is a dramatic moment or moments um, where groups were probably interacting and trying to negotiate and figure out who gets to stay where. And I think archeologically, sometimes these things can end up looking like replacements because what ends up happening is that one group maybe comes into a region and, um, whether it's that you know groups intermarry, um, one maybe it becomes the the predominant expression of uh, a cultural manifestation. But whether or not you can say that those are people being chased entirely out uh, and and being you know that the that the maritime archaic people disappeared, I think is pretty hard argument to make. Uh, in part because you can see cultural continuities in a bunch of other things that um, suggest that whether or not we see maritime archaic persisting beyond what it looked like at the late maritime archaic, you see stuff going on in later periods that looks very similar to what people were doing, um, you know, prior to the Susquehanna episode.
1: And also that one imagines that Rouse's criteria for an in-migration would be the same for an out-migration, right? That we we should yeah, be able to, should, yeah.
0: Yeah. You should see the late, Marca- you should see these maritime archaic people Instead of disappearing from, you know, New Brunswick all the way up to Labrador. <laughs> yeah. Right. You should see them go somewhere, right? Yeah. Like
1: the uh and Jim Peterson actually talked about this. And so this is a great article, actually. We'll put it in the show notes, but it's a nineteen ninety-five article. This doesn't get cited as much as it should, I don't think. Um but and so what Peters is doing, it's called like pre ceramic um what is it called we Archaeological it manifestations, show. isn't that what it is? That's the one, yeah. Prehistoric yeah. archaeological manifestations of the far northeast. That's a good phrase, far northeast. Yep. And
0: um, it, in, It's one of the first published references of far northeast, isn't it?
1: It's. I think it is. And so when, so uh, listener, I know it's on your bookshelf, uh, or perhaps on your bedside table, even. Um, uh, perhaps even on gets, your desk. It might even be on your desk. It might even be the thing that's holding your monitor up. It's thick enough. <laughs> um, but uh, Ken and I did a, a book on the basically the Woodward period in the far northeast, um, which we we take to mean basically uh, like Biddeford, Maine, up.
0: Yeah. yeah. But it could include Vermont and places like that.
1: Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, Peterson said, uh, quote, as some might expect, evidence of continuity between the Susquehanna and earlier pre-ceramic. So he means, but pre-ceramic, he basically means before 3,000 years ago. Entities is beginning to emerge in the region. For example, redundancy in site location, including both habitations and cemeteries, perhaps some aspects of the supposedly different burial practices, e.g. cremations, red ochre, etc. Raw material usage, trade patterns, and even some aspects of technology, for example, stem biface forms, some groundstone celts axes, and gouges, etc., all put your run counter to the conventional argument. And by conventional argument, he means that population replacement argument we are talking about. And he says, moreover, the same authors who argue for a decreased marine resource competency during Susquehanna times have noted changing environmental conditions at the end of the Moorhead tradition, after 4,000 to 3,800 BP, which brought increasingly colder water to the Gulf of Maine. This may account for decreased emphasis on swordfish. For example, during the Susquehanna tradition, rather than being a different adaptation per se. And I think that's actually a really crucial, um, I, I really like that paragraph from Peterson. I think yep. it's sort of prescient in some interesting ways. And I think one just key um, argument he makes, and I think this is this is really one that Matt made, uh, Matt Betts at various points, which is that you want to be careful about interpreting people's adaptations to a changing environment as being this big cultural discontinuity, right? Yeah. Like Yeah, exactly. yeah you're not I mean, going to be adapted to hunt swordfish if you don't have swordfish near where you are.
0: Yeah, exactly. And and I mean at the same time too, so you get the Gulf of Maine water changing, but in the interior you have really kind of a stabilization of a lot of river systems at around 3800 between you know 3800 and about 3000 years ago is when the present day configuration of a lot of these river systems that drain into the Gulf of Maine um when they, when they became established as they are today. So the, you know, the present day shorelines and things like that, that's sort of these environments settled out at this time. And so, you know, what you're seeing is kind of an explosion of sort of this broad spectrum behavior, maybe the fact that, you know, a a period of fairly dynamic climatic change that had been going on for several thousand years sort of levels out. Um, and things kind of normalize to a certain degree. Right.
1: Totally. Yeah. Um, and so along with that kind of question though that you raised about the, the sort of environmental changes is this question about regional distribution that we've talked about, right? So, you know, it's kind of interesting. I think one of the things that when we talk about regional prehistory is this idea of the Northeast, and we've parsed it out further into the far Northeast, which is just like the Northeast, but you don't grow corn, uh, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's just that... Um, questions of regional distribution and and this is one of the ones that really hovered around the questions of Susquehanna and migration. So for a long time, there's this question, you know, did Susquehanna make it to the Maritimes like really? And this was um, you know discussed you know I think Dave Black and Dave Sanger talked about this in the CJA, the Canadian Journal of Archaeology, um, extensively um, and so did this, this kind of broad spirit tradition make it up this far? Um, and so I think maybe can the kind of useful thing for us to talk about. Um, well, I think the answer is yes. It would be my view. Is that your view yep. as well?
0: I, I would agree with that. Yep.
1: Yeah. And I think that maybe the way to do this, I was, I was at a conference once and um a cultural anthropologist I admire a whole lot, this guy named uh, Jim Roscoe, one of my professors, actually. He um he didn't really want to make an argument about something he was talking about. So instead he said, I'm just going to sort of prove this by citation. And he had a slide <laughs> and had a list of like, you know, I don't know, 60 or 70 people who had argued something. And he felt that that was conclusive. So what we're going to essentially do, I think here is we're going to make an argument by citation that says, <laughs>
0: Do the do the rundown.
1: Yeah. So we'll do the rundown here. And and Ken knows more about many of these than I do. Um I feel a little weird that we're leading with Dave Black here, but the um but Dave, I think, is just has done some incredible work on this. And I think it's worth mentioning Dave's work on this because um it it touches on some of the things we've talked about just on this podcast, you know, that you should have, if you're a professional archaeologist, good relationship with responsible collectors. Yep. And so out of Dave's work in large part responsible collectors, also out of his field research, he sort of recognized that there are, in fact, a fair bit of transitional archaic um, materials in the Passamaquoddy Bay region. And it turns out, for reasons that are uh, unknown, <laughs> these sites face northwest. And for the listener who is listening to our episodes backwards, we're talking into the future, this is three years later, You've, you're listening in reverse, you're already listening to our woodland episodes, you'll know that our coastal sites tend to be, you know, south-ishly oriented. And um, so you've got these northwest-oriented sites. And on top of that, they're intertidal sites, so they're on the beach. And these are at places like Rum Beach, which is a cool site. We should get Dave on to talk about Rum Beach. That's a cool site.
0: It would be a cool site. Good, the, uh, good, good discussion and a great monograph to go with it.
1: Yeah, it would, yeah. Um, if you're listening, Dave, we'll be in touch tomorrow. I'll be call you <laughs> <laughs> and uh but where there's these affinities with with susquehanna and you know like dave you know uh as pointed out basically that there was this uh paper in archaeology of north america from massachusetts by the late brian jones and brianna ray you know about a similar kind of intertidal northwest facing susquehanna site if you sort of plop that site in the quadri region nobody would blink at it it looks very similar to stuff dave's talking about um from the Rum Beach site. And then Ken correctly pointed out as I was lounging on the couch earlier and not thinking about um this podcast that uh Harper in fact had found some Sasquana stuff at uh Portland Point, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. So the uh, the occupation three so the Portland Point is a site that was originally excavated, I think because it was a French fort. Is that yeah, like Fort Tour? Right. Yeah.
1: Um
0: and we talked about it, I think a little bit because there is a uh, Moorhead burial at that site, uh, this is right. at the mouth of the St. John river, um, uh, in, in the city of St. John, present day city of St. John, um, in occupation three. Um, so there's, you know, a fairly clearly, uh, a, a broad spear, um, what looks to be sort of this Orient fishtail. So sort a of late Susquehanna, mm-hmm. um, style point, there's a steatite vessel fragments, which is interesting. Um, maybe a drill, like something looks kind of has this diamond shaped thing, like what you expect to see on these, these flakestone drills. Um, and so that was in 1958. Um, in 1976, Dave Burley had done some work at the Bentley Street site, which is also in Maine. Um, this is possibly a portage. Actually, City of St. John. What did I say?
1: Yeah. You said Maine, yeah.
0: Oh, City of St. John.
1: See, Turner Farm has this magnetic pole, even that, you know. Yeah, yeah. I feel like this is the thing was Kevin Leonard who pointed out, that the Canadian archaeology textbooks used, or was it American archaeology textbooks used to put sites from the Maritimes in New York?
0: Was it... But, but this is like the ongoing theme of like you know the the maritime's just being omitted from all maps of the northeast. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah this is uh, a sea
1: monster here usually.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, and so so the Bentley Street site in City of Saint John. I was going to interrupt
1: um, again though, but but Ken is from Fredericton, and and if you're from Fredericton, Saint John does actually not exist. This is
0: true. <laughs> <laughs> well, or it's nefarious. That's right. A, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, there would be dragons. <laughs> um, but uh, so well, they're smoking possi- something. possibly a portage um steatite fragments uh were covered there um there there there's all these 19th century accounts of um these sort of double grooved axes which are fairly characteristic of uh the susquehanna period um in around the grand lake meadows region so in the period the the sort of group of lakes sort of in the lower wallastog in around grand lake and french lake and those um, a, a, fairly famous, um, picture you could probably find online of a, of, steatite a vessel that came from the Ormocto Lake region, um, which may have been ritually killed. So it has this hole in the bottom of it that was possibly perforated by a drill or something else, um, in an act of maybe, um, sort of intentionally killing or, or, or ending the life of that particular vessel, um, p- probably for use in a in a burial context but unclear if it was or not
1: and that's probably Um, a riff on this idea that uh like wabanaki uh nouns can be active or not active is my understanding right and so you can have things that can hold things like vessels are active nouns and and other things are are inactive nouns and so the uh when and, Ken and I should not take a foray into Wabanaki linguistics right now but there's this sort of idea that there are different kinds of nouns that may not be familiar to us in kind of a western canon but so that things that are kind of alive like vessels it yeah. would make sense that you think about them differently than you do about these inactive nouns
0: yeah and so we would perceive usually a, a, a one of these steatite vessels as an inanimate object but these are not necessarily inanimate object objects the people who made them right um, yeah yeah um, and so there's also, a rep, uh, uh, possibly another complete sea type vessel that was found in French Lake, um, which is in the Grand Lake region. Again, um, it may be the same one that Campbell's talking about. And, um, but, uh, but so there's, there's basically recovery of a bunch of different, um, sort of characteristic artifacts. That, so, so Susan Blair and her, um, uh, the lost a report talks about how sort of, if you aggregate the number of, steatite vessels recovered in the lower Velostic alone um it actually totals more than what has been found in, in sites in maine at least up to that point when she wrote that super wrote interesting book, which is really interesting and so um and john campbell in his um in his master's thesis actually has a great table um where he kind of outlines the number of artifacts that appear to be susquehanna like from new brunswick totaling about 55 and this includes you know these are axes d-type vessels and a and a whole variety of um of sort of the whole suite of Susquehanna style projectile points but i w- what i think is most interesting about um Campbell's thesis is that he has these these maps where he kind of plots out where all this transitional archaic stuff is and and you can draw kind of a straight line from kind of i don't know around Bangor area um, across to Fredericton and then out to you know uh, the North shore of, of Prince Edward Island, probably in around like um, uh, Brackley beach area. And there's nothing North of that other than one yeah. site in Quebec, which is fascinating.
1: Yeah. And, and the, I, I would love if I could directly quote this, but the, the effect of, I th- I think the implicate that. <laughs> so at the end of this chapter in, in the book, man, I did, we say something like, huh. I think that's you know this is interesting. We we you know I certainly don't know what to make of it.
0: Yeah, um, and and I and what's what's really interesting is that so so we say that the the line cuts off somewhere around Fredericton, and and there's this um, interesting sort of transitional archaic component at the GemSake site in the Lower Velostok that has some affinities to um, looks like what you there, there's stuff in there and the dates kind of are from about 3300 to about 2900 so right in that orient phase it, kind of that years ago
2: that,
0: yeah yeah years ago um uh that sort of late transitional archaic orient phase um there's there's um some orient style points that were probably found in the disturbed area of the site but there's also some other objects that were recovered at Jemsege um that are very cl- similar to um these Dates uh, from these features in Miramichi, um, which have these sort of oversized bifaces, the Quarryville site, which is a burial site, and a similar one, um, uh, and the Boulder Campsite, which is a small campsite. And these date to between 2800 um, and and about 2900 years ago, sort sort of toward the end of the Transitional Archaic and the sort of onset of what we would call conventionally call the Early Woodland. And what's what's clear is that there's this sort of Mashup going on that we can't really we don't have enough radiocarbon dates we don't have a good enough contexts to be able to parse out where the orient phase becomes the early woodland right and and I yeah. think this is really what Peterson's kind of driving at is that you know we have these sort of this persistence in in places where people are occupying for several millennia and while you have this dramatic shift from these late Mar- maritime archaic you know burial patterns this Moorhead thing kind of ends. Um, it's not like people leave places and it's not like they even choose to live in different places. Right.
1: That's right. Yeah. And they're, so there, um, and it's, so we should say, I just want to kind of catch the listener up. So uh Gem-Sag is fairly close to Fredericton, but for the listener from outside of New Brunswick. Uh, oh, I, it- I thought we
0: had talked about, I suppose, we've talked about Jemseg in an earlier episode
1: they it's possible the listener doesn't listen to these with a religious fervor that we that expect. is true yeah. so yeah yeah
0: yeah so the Jemseg crossing archaeological site bkdm 14 in the borden classification system
1: can <laughs> um, just checked his tattoo on his forearm for the listener that can't see that
0: yeah um uh, so it was a site that was excavated as a result of the twinning of the trans canada highway um for those in new brunswick big project even in my youth um in the early 90s um, excavated sort of as a collaborative uh, project between uh, researchers, uh, um, the provincial government, indigenous groups, and the Department of Transportation, as well as some private consultants that were uh, brought on for the work. Um, and Susan Blair, um, who is professor at Un- University of New Brunswick, um, she was one of the project directors at the, during the field work um, and also um, uh, wrote up uh, along with Karen Purley, who was the former head of the Maliseet Advisory Committee on Archaeology, um, a provincial government entity. Um, they wrote up uh, the the results of the archaeological work at GEMSEG and a couple of published volumes that actually you'll be able to find uh, in the show notes uh, in PDF form online, um, some really great archaeological work um, and publications and, and uh, two-volume publication, basically, that uh, uh, the first of which is, is actually um, uh, consists of a lot of stories told by Velastogwig themselves about um, places in and around Gemseg in the lower Velastog that were, they were living, you know, in the, their memories of the 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, and then grafted over the second volume, which is the archeological results showing this sort of deep occupation and connection to place at Gemseg, basically. Um, okay. and,
1: and we should just say like, in case we forget to mention it again, because we'll probably talk about Gemseg again, but the it's sort of a pioneering collaborative archeology span project. Yep. Um, you know, incredibly influential. I mean, it's pro- probably the most important collaborative archaeology project in New Brunswick, you know, and and uh, tone, at a tone time, setting.
0: Yeah, and at a time where, like, not many people were doing real collaborative archaeology. Like, this was, right. um, uh, you know, this, this was a co-managed project between Indigenous groups, um, uh, community members, and archaeologists, and non-Indigenous archaeologists, and, and had a real... Um, uh, in, push for education um, and uh, capacity building within communities and, and was a um, and actually was probably kind of a watershed moment for archeology span in New Brunswick in the sense that it started to build back trust between archeologists and indigenous groups that have been lost uh, as a result of a number of, of sort of um, controversial things that had happened in the, in the eighties and early nineties. So.
1: Yeah. So highly recommended that, that, that folks check this out. Um, okay. So uh to kind of return to we've been talking about jump uh another site we should mention is Boswell. And yep. because this is in Nova Scotia and this is
0: recently on the published. north shore of Nova Scotia?
1: Absolutely, yeah. Which um we don't really have a good breakdown of where all of our listeners are from because we know you're using VPNs anyway. It all seems like you're you're coming in from you know Iraqi Kurdistan. What are the odds that we have six <laughs> listeners from Iraqi-Kurdistan? I don't know. Um, but the uh but uh, this is recently published in Canadian Journal of Archaeology. Uh, but also this uh, the are we still calling him Jack Campbell or should we call him John Andrew Campbell? <laughs> the yes, yeah, so anyway, so John Andrew Campbell did his master's thesis on this, and then but Mike deals had a long-term had a Mun long-term research project here, and um, but what's sort of interesting about this uh, site from Nova Scotia is that it may have material that represents the whole. You know, we talked about that Atlantic all the way to Orient phase temporal sequence for the transitional archaic. It seems like Boswell has all of that. And then on top of that, it's got maritime wooden, which we're going to talk about in a fortnight. And then below that, it may have some late maritime archaic. So this is, you know, I mean, if there were a site that... um you know, you imagine Jim Peterson, you know, the site is a bass drum. Jim Peterson's got the got the hammer strolling out. It's like, you know, it's it's like the the old King Kong movie right where they hit the hit the the big, yeah, exactly. and then King Kong appears. and uh, so this site is a bit like that where just it the site smells a bit more like continuity than many of these other sites have. um, and that's super interesting. So, um, but as Ken pointed out, you know, past this, we don't know. We're not sure. Yeah. that's and,
0: that's almost a good place to, to to transition to something else
1: it is should we leave them with this robinson quote if that's so beautifully vague as to just inspire <laughs> inspire a sort of zen-like appreciation of this period that we don't understand i think so is that uh brian robinson the the uh sadly late brian robinson 2001 he said that the transitional archaic implicates major mechanisms of social change at the transition between the archaic and the woodland then in quote stages end quote almost regardless of the side one takes in the susquehanna migration argument so that's right listener major mechanisms of social change that's where we're gonna leave you as we transition over to our hit pieces for this fortnight if i lead with our hit pieces this week
0: you can you can
1: fantastic so um the provincial archaeology office out of newfoundland and labrador they um endeavor every year to release this really useful publication which is essentially a review um as the, the title would imply of the archaeology that's been done um in the province uh in the previous year so what they basically do is they sort of have my understanding is it's people who've held permits in the province in the previous year, right? Archaeology yep. projects are, um, permits are encouraged to submit a kind of, uh, you know, suitable for professional or educated educational consumption, um, report of what they did. And this is fantastic. And it produces a great review of the previous year's work. And oftentimes, uh, the, Chapters of the, I suppose, articles within it are imminently citable. And I think we should just applaud this because they are the Atlantic Canadian province that does this, right? Where you at least have a sense of, in the previous year, what your tax dollars, because dear listener, you are paying your tax dollars to archaeology in the region um, that you live in. Uh you, you know, perhaps maybe you're paying tax dollars to archaeologists in other regions. I don't really know how how you're <laughs> I don't want to get you indicted, but you know, <laughs> however you're working it. Um, you know, if you live in New Hampshire, you're not paying tax dollars for anything. Um, as I sit here comfortably. But the um but the PAO <laughs> is is putting the uh uh the public stars to work. And so you can just download these and we'll put a link to these in the show notes. Um but if you just want to Google it, it's the PAO review and it's volume twenty-one and that's the 2022 review of of all archaeological research done in Newfoundland and Labrador uh last year and then and Ken it, has it, some uh information about an upcoming uh thing he's involved in at the CA yeah, and, and
0: and just just on the the PAO just before we we leave that like um I think what the listeners should also realize is that these have also grown as opposed to contracting so like these are getting bigger and broader in their coverage each year. Um, like it's up to 327 pages this year, which is like, you know, these started out as sort of like 20 to 25 page reviews with a few articles in them. They do a great job. They have a big map at the start that shows you where all this field work took place. So you get a sense of like the scope of, of kind of the research enterprise and maybe the CRM what's going on there. Um, and it, and it really is, um, a shame that we don't have this coming from the maritime provinces. And so if you are interested in archaeology, one of the things you should push for um, as members of the public is to, you know, uh, write to your MLA and say that we would really love to see um, something akin to the PAO come out of um, provincial government uh, offices in New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, and PEI, because um, it's going to be a benefit to you. Um, and, uh, and you know, uh, maybe we'll be able to talk a little bit more about the translator transitional archaic if we if we had a little bit more to 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 write on so
1: yeah i couldn't um, agree more ken and um the if the pao version of this is um it's unique in clinic canada it's it's not exactly unique um in the region we should say that there are pretty much every state in new england has a bulletin which serves sort of the same function that the pao thing does right where it's yeah exactly these, these are the hits you know so you know for the the PO is free, you know, in the in the same way that for a very modest fee, you can access the the ones in New England. Um
0: as somebody who failed spectacularly at trying to create a New Brunswick archaeology journal, um, I can say that it is uh uh it is you're doing the Lord's work if you uh, if you take this on. So
1: yeah. And in fact, Ken, I almost feel like we should provide a form letter for people who are like, hey, you know, <laughs> this that that might be a t-shirt. We could do a form letter with like a t-shirt with the form letter on it. Instead there you go. Stickers next time. Yeah. But I uh, demand. Yeah. Cuz Ken and I can't get reports from uh, this part of the world either. So if you want to write in, you know, let us know.
2: Um,
1: uh, but, but Ken's doing a lot of doing an exciting session um at the CES this year.
0: Yeah, so uh, I'm the chair of the advocacy committee at the Canadian with the Canadian Archaeological Association, and which is uh, why he just co-
1: leaned into telling you something that he'd like you to advocate for.
0: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um. And so, uh, along with my colleagues, Marissa Barris, uh, Stephen Dorland, and Beatrice Fletcher. Um, we are co hosting. Can you give their a,
1: affiliations too? I'm sorry. I keep oh, uh, so sorry. Uh,
0: Marissa Barris is the uh, interim director of the Canadian version of ICOMOS. I, I may have misquoted. She's an interim director of ICOMOS in some capacity. Cool. Um, uh, Stephen Dorland is an assistant professor at Grand Valley State University. Right. Uh, and Beatrice Fletcher is a, a PhD candidate at McMaster University. She's also a sessional instructor there, she awesome. uh, teaches separate courses. Um, and so, um, we are co-hosting a an online uh, and in-person uh, session called Professional Careers in Archaeology and Beyond. Um, and this is basically going to be a panel discussion with um, a number of professional archaeologists from across uh, Canada representing um, both heritage uh, disciplines, um, CRM, uh, as well as uh, Indigenous uh, consultants and groups that represent Indigenous community members and heritage more generally, um, and so basically it's an opportunity um, aimed at uh, senior undergraduate or graduate students, um, or really anybody in their undergraduate who's interested in um, what can you do with a career in archaeology um, or a degree in archaeology, and what are the pathways maybe that these people took to getting. Uh, their degrees. So we've got a gentleman who is the head of a, a small historical society in St. Catharines, Ontario. We've got the director of, um, um, or the former director of Newfoundland Heritage, basically. Um, we also have uh, an indigenous elder and consultant um, and uh, and some folks that have worked in the CRM industry, business owners, that kind of thing. And so um, basically the the session will be um, these panelists will kind of do a you know short presentation about their careers, um, the kind of education they had, their pathways, uh, and then it's going to be opened up into a discussion um, where we'll kind of moderate. Uh, with questions from the online participants as well as in person, uh, and just uh, encourage everybody to attend and kind of take an opportunity. Um, I was lucky enough to go to a very big school for my PhD, so I went to U of T where these professionalization events were organized by the department that I I was in. Um, But a lot of smaller institutions um, don't actually have that opportunity, and so the idea is that we're trying to level the playing field here for um, people who are either actively in education, um, learning about archeology span or doing a degree in archeology, um, and, and those who, um, might be interested in it and how, you know, how can this pan out? Like, how do you end up becoming a professional and, and what kind of careers could you look at? That's great.
1: Um, and we know, I mean, we know that, uh, I think we've talked about this before that there's going to be something like in the United States, and we assume this will be somewhat mirrored in, in Canada. Uh, the United States is looking at like 8,000 too few archeologists in the next decade.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I, I had kind of a shocking conversation with a, a gentleman who used to work with the um, uh, National Parks Service in, in the states, who said that it wasn't, it wasn't. It's not just an issue of you, you don't have enough archaeologists to do the work. Um, you don't have enough archaeologists who can review the work. Uh, so, yeah, right. So it's like there's these sort of industry wide challenges, and and uh, and so it's not just archaeologists, but there's a lot of people too in the heritage sector who. Um, you know, are getting close to retirement age and that kind of thing, and so I think there's actually a really great opportunity for a lot of students who are coming up through um, in the in the anthropology and archaeology world to uh, to look forward to brighter futures and 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 employment opportunities in a in a yeah. variety of different fields.
1: So yeah, absolutely, which is fantastic. Ken and I are sitting, you know, of course, we're sitting here talking to you about this from our what everyone imagines an archaeologist does. So yeah, we we teach, but the um, well, I mean, I'm Indiana Jones. Ken teaches. The, uh, I'm in a fedora actually somewhere, you know, in the, the American Southwest. Um, but Ken is leaving his you know lame life and left for Alberta as a professor. Um but <laughs> the uh but the students should know that in addition to my life, you know, involving um Nazis, Russian with swords, and so forth, that uh this this can really be a good career if you're interested in archaeology. Um and then we should plug just quickly if you're if you're if you're at the SAAs um CAs. sorry the CAs if you're at the SAAs you've already missed us but you've seen Ken uh (laughs) if you're at the CAs uh you should find us we're hoping to have another batch of stickers we'll be doing also the David W. Black um papers in honor of session uh who've you heard about and we're looking forward to that uh lots of good papers uh I think we're up to 13 papers in that
0: that. I think so and uh and you'll 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 see us because we'll have uh Gabe will be walking around with uh one of those big like uh like sort of a goofy, like a very large chain and yeah. uh, and the microphone hanging off of it. So we can just kind of grab you in the hallway and and, uh, and go.
1: Yeah, usually I'm the Indiana Jones of Canadian archaeology, but at the CAAs, I'm the Flavor flavor of uh, <laughs> that's, that's, Canadian archeology <laughs> Yeah. I mean, the show is, I think, <laughs> Flavors of Love, which is not what we've called the David <laughs> W. Black session, but we we thought about it. <laughs> well, Ken, um, I'm looking at a half-finished bottle of Kovasi. Cool How about you?
0: I I'm I am too, and and uh, uh, before we go, I do want to mention this is actually the second episode in a row that King Kong has come up. And <laughs> is uh, it really, so, yeah, yeah. Apache uh, Joliecore brought up King Kong in reference to Skull Island.
1: Oh, so he did. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: It's just a non sequitur. You're just mentioning <laughs> just total non sequitur. I just I just wanted to get that in
0: before we stopped recording. <laughs> well, um. We'll
1: thank you, listener. In, uh, we'll be in gorilla suits. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll um, We'll see you in, uh, in a fortnight, and we appreciate you tuning in, and we would really like to thank you all. Um, it means a lot to have had uh, over 1,000 listens. Um, the next one that we'll be very excited about is 10,000. So listen up, and we will see you in a fortnight, or talk to you in a fortnight. Um, talk to you soon, listener. Take care. If <laughs> we stuck the landing on that, but yeah. Going closer.
2: Yeah, so I think we need to, we'll
0: need to lean in. But, all right. So I'm just going to let this land. I can do all. Welcome to the New Brunswick Archaeology podcast coming to you live from the chilies at the Calgary Airport. And I'm joined today with uh, Gabe Yanicki, fellow archaeologist and fellow uh, freezing fog stayed archaeologist. Uh, Gabe, what brings you to the Calgary Airport Chili's?
2: I'm just wrapping up fieldwork here in Southern Alberta and trying to get home. If anyone ever tells you they're doing fieldwork in Southern Alberta in March, can take it on my authority that they are a very silly person.
0: And and uh, so so fieldwork at the end of March. Um, uh,
2: what what uh, what sort of fieldwork would that be for? I just spent um, the better part of two weeks digging down at Wally's Beach, which is a fantastic site down by Hartston in southern Alberta. Um, yeah. Wally's Beach is best known for um, its late Pleistocene megafauna trackways, including. Horse, camel, muskox, and even footprints. Uh, sorry. Horse, camel, muskox, and even woolly mammoth footprints. Um, woolly mammoth. Woolly um, mammoth. But also the bones of a lot of those species. And it's, it's also a great site documenting the um, earliest ancestral First Nations presence in the Ice Creek Corridor region. It's got a cultural record spanning the Clovis era right through to European. Continent. At the the, the second history of this region in the late 1800s. But the uh, bones, meanwhile, show evidence of human butchery. We've got broken camel ribs, they yeah. smashed off at stone tools, cut marks and camel ribbon and, an and, um, and the bones yeah. date back to about 15,000, 15,000 ribbons in 15 years. After the so getting into a a window of 300 years pre-COVID.
0: Very cool. And and I'm guessing that uh, uh, wrapping up the fieldwork this time of year that the, uh, the results weren't quite what you expected?
2: Not quite what I was hoping for. Uh, we were expecting some adverse weather, frozen ground. Earth. Um, yeah, we've had some snow over the past few weeks. And that, on top of, it's uh, been beginning to dry out, but it just turned to so the site like, so at so really you, tough conditions.
0: At least you didn't get blasted by the wind too bad. That was, uh, was The
2: site is famous for its dust storm. <laughs> have you ever been out there?
0: I have, I have, yeah. Did you and get caught in the wind? I, we didn't get caught in the wind, but I was warned by the students that I, I didn't have anything to cover my face up with, and that was maybe a bad idea. So
2: Yeah, you want, you want goggles, you want something for your them. Yeah, I flew a drone out there a couple of years ago. It went really great into flying winds to like thirty-five kilometers an hour, but by the time the wind gets the road, up to like 40 kilometers at Wally's Beach, the dust clouds are about to do something. It's just complete sandstorm conditions. Like, yeah, you really have to follow the state rebar routes that are plotted out of the site sure on the
0: Wow, Wow the dust. That's a it's a challenge that not many people are used to.
2: Not in the Alberta came out there.
0: Well, thank you very much, Gabe. Uh, I think we're going to return to our Caesars here, and, uh, and I'll let you get back to Ottawa, and uh, at some point today, I will end up in Portland. Thank you.